Hey, welcome to the Frotter H Reading Podcast. I am Frotter H. In this podcast recording, when and wherever you are hearing it, I'll be reading to you short descriptions of performance artworks from the 1970s. Uh, Following that, I will read the first five chapters of the book of Ezekiel from the King James Bible. There will be mispronunciations. Uh, To begin, uh, these descriptions are from a book published in 1980 called Performance Anthology, which was a source book that excerpted various reviews, interviews, and published essays documenting performance art in California in the 1970s. This is an excerpt from Ken Friedman's self-published 1966 book, The Aesthetics. The artist, in his role as worker, no matter what particular career identification he may undertake, has the right to work and earn an honest living. The present system of art marketing and access to public realms constrains the right of the art worker in all but a few prominent cases. The artist is treated as a commodity, and thus is dehumanized, denied the right of any working person, and further, even if successful, liable to the merest vagary of fashion or of ill practice at the hands of the marketeer. I propose that henceforth I will regard myself not as a commodity, but as a professional. As such, rather than selling artworks, I will only sell my professional services. From a 1971 Art Week description of a Terry Fox performance. Below the shelter of the parachute, Fox, barefooted, and wearing white pants and shirt, lay asleep on a floor covered with white canvas. Tied to a tuft of his hair, a cord ran out across the floor to the tail of a fat gray fish, a carp, perhaps, about a foot long, that lay on a patch of white cloth, superimposed on the floor covering. A second fish nearby was tied by a cord that ran to Fox's mouth, Close to the gray fish, a gray pan of water held something that looked like soap. Near the barred doorway, where viewers stood, two large flashlights were almost buried in a pile of soap powder, the light of one just visible burning feebly in competition with the big bulb above. From a 1971 Avalanche magazine a description of Isolation Unit, a performance by Terry Fox and Joseph Boys. On November 24, 1970, at 7.00 p.m., after spending four hours alone together in the cellar of the Dusseldorf Kunst Academy, Joseph Boys and Terry Fox carried out Isolation Unit, a half-hour performance, for an audience of about 30 friends. The event acted as a requiem for a pet mouse kept by boys for three years which had just died. Clad in his special felt suit, a block multiple, 
boys gave the mouse a ride on a tape recorder reel, and then stood, gently cradling it in one hand while he ate an exotic fruit and spat the seeds into a silver bowl. A 33 RPM record with boys on one side and fox on the other has been made of the event. 33. Chris Burden, TV Hijack, Los Angeles, California, February 9, 1972. Quote, on January 14th, I was asked to do a piece on a local television station by Phyllis Lutjeans. After several proposals were censored by the station or by Phyllis, I agreed to an interview situation. I arrived at the station with my own video crew so that I could have my own tape. While the taping was in progress, I requested that the show be transmitted live. Since the station was not recording at the time, they complied. In the course of the interview, Phyllis asked me to talk about some of the pieces I had thought of doing. I demonstrated a TV hijack. Holding a knife at her throat, I threatened her life if the station stopped live transmission. I told her that I planned to make her perform obscene acts. At the end of the recording, I asked for the tape of the show. I unwound the reel and destroyed the show by dousing the tape with acetone. The station manager was irate, and I offered him my tape, which included the show and its destruction, but he refused. End quote. From an interview in Avalanche newspaper, May June 1974, between Liza Bear and Chris Burden. Liza. On the video monitors during the performance, it looked as though Larry Bell had stuck several pushpins into your stomach. But after the show, I heard a rumor that the tips were broken off and covered with gum. Chris Burden. Well, that's a good one. They were standard pushpins, folks, that I bought down on Canal Street. Five-eighth-inch tips. But I did sterilize them in alcohol, and you could smell that in the elevator. I didn't even know it was Larry Bell. Because his face was upside down, I thought he was in New Mexico. Then he said, Where do you want me to stick these? And I recognized his voice. Liza. That wasn't audible to the audience on the monitors. Chris. I know. I didn't say anything, so he tried to poke one into my arm, and his hand was shaking so bad that the pin rolled right off. Then he started sticking them into my stomach, but my head was way back, so I couldn't see what was happening, and I thought they were going all the way in. And I thought, gee, that's great. They don't even hurt. Liza. They seemed to stay in for a while. They didn't fall out. Chris. No, no, he stuck them in all right, but he didn't push them into the hilt. Liza. Had you expected him to do that? Chris, yeah, never occurred to me that a person would do it halfway. Either you don't put them in, or you do put them in. From a 1974 interview with Barbara Smith by Moira Roth. Can we begin by talking about the Feed Me piece, which you did earlier this year for the San Francisco Museum of Conceptual Art? How is it set up? It lasted all night until dawn, and you spent the time sitting nude in a room? Smith. Yes. There was a mattress, and a rug, and pillows, and many things around me. An incense was burning, and it was warm. There was a heater. Roth. 
As the piece was called Feed Me, what sort of feeding did you get out of it? Smith. On a lot of levels, there were body oils and perfume in the room so that one person gave me a back rub. There was food and wine they could give me. There was music, flowers, shawls, and beads, and things like that. There was tea, books, and grass. That's about all. And so, as a person came into the room, he could choose anything he wanted to to use as a medium of interaction. And it was all a source of food, food meaning sustenance. This could include conversation and affection. Roth. Did it have any limits on what you would allow to happen? Smith. I didn't want anyone who wasn't positive, whose emotions weren't positive towards me. I would have felt very defensive about that, and I would prevent any action which I did not consider food. Roth. Did you check with people afterwards about how they felt? Smith. A few, but since it lasted all night, virtually everybody but the other artists were gone in the morning. The other artists were very supportive of my piece. I heard afterwards about at least one or two people who didn't like it. They were women, and they didn't like it because they felt it was compromising to women's lib. Roth. How do you feel about the piece in terms of images of women? The courtesan and odalisque are obvious images that come to mind. Smith. Well, for one thing, that's an image that either has been real to some people, or in one way or uh, the other, the person has been part of their fantasy life. And then there are so many levels of real life that border on that kind of activity. So the question is, not only if it exists in anybody's mind, but the fact that it exists on so many levels. So that's how I feel about it in terms of women's lib. It's a reality which one must confront. For me, my art accomplishes my own liberation. It makes me stronger. For others, it acts as any art does, a confrontation that they must face on their own terms. I'm pointing to things that are real, which people may or may not like to face. Excerpt from a review of the Kipper Kids, Like a Journal, April, May, 1975. The performance is gross, obscene, irreverent, and unbeautiful. It is a deliberate and unremitting distortion of the niceties of our social behavior, our beliefs, our intimacies, and our art into the grotesque. It's hard, for example, to imagine anything more innocent and warmly human than a child's birthday party. In the hands of the Kipper Kids, it becomes an obscene, piggy ritual without joy or love, which includes the perfunctory exchange of rubber ducks as gifts, a lunatic scoffing match as the two stuff cake into their mouths, actually a dinner roll which must have been several weeks old, and a final regurgitation of the remains into the faces of the audience, hideous and hideously funny. Each of the successive food ceremonies which form the tripartite structure of the action, the birthday party, a tea ceremony, and a dinner, is a ritual which becomes the occasion for fetishism, obscenity, and a series of sounds and gestures ranging from the low to the clearly subhuman, burping, gobbling, squealing, and squawking, poking, pulling, pinching, goosing, and so on. In short, a Freudian nightmare comedy of oral and anal obsession.
from La Mamelle Magazine, Art Contemporary, Spring 1976, a description of Nancy Buchanan's rock and roll piece. In preparation for this performance, I had multiple photographs made of myself wearing a long blonde wig, which I signed and numbered. These were sold as raffle tickets. The audience was greeted by Blue Cheer, a rock and roll band who introduced me. Together, we performed a song entitled Union Oil Company's Annual, Ro Annual Report to Shareholders, which I composed from the same, written by Fred Hartley Jr. of Union Oil. I was then blindfolded and drew two winners of the raffle. While seated at a small table, a performer drew a syringe full of my blood. I announced that the raffle prize was four shares each of Union Oil stock, which I had inherited from my family some years previously. I read the latest Do I read the latest Dow Jones averages for Union Oil from the Wall Street Journal and signed away ownership with the blood. From a High Performance Magazine, June 1978, John Duncan describes a piece he presented at a performance festival called Connecting Myths. Every Woman, John Duncan, March 24th. I wanted to feel, even for one night, the daily vulnerability to sexual attack experienced by most women. I exposed myself to sexual aggression by men, as a man one night, as a woman the next, on a Hollywood street. Paul McCarthy witnessed the event both nights. Together, on the 24th, we answered questions and described our perceptions to an audience. Chris Burden, The Citadel, Los Angeles, California, August 8th through 12th, 1978. Quote, The Citadel was a combination installation and performance dealing with outer space. A small, oddly shaped room with a rear brick wall was made completely light tight and painted black. Over 500 extremely detailed miniature metal spaceships ranging in size from one quarter of an inch to four inches, were hung from the ceiling using black thread. Four folding chairs were provided for the audience. Each group of four was let into the pitch-black room and seated by an assistant. Because they had been waiting outside in the bright sunlight, they could not see anything. I turned on two tape recorders. One tape was, record, was a recording of a steam jet on a cappuccino machine repeated over and over. This simulated rocket noise. The other tape began with the message that, quote, These starships have assembled here from all corners of the universe to investigate the infinite, inexplicable citadel wall, the end of the universe, end quote. At the same moment, I lit a candle, which illuminated a small portion of the spaceships. While the rocket noise continued, the audio tape related a series of excerpts from outer space war games, such as travel, such as travel in suspended animation, the use of the jump drive for interstellar travel, atmospheric conditions, names and uses of the different types of ships, 
the vast array of different types of weaponry, etc. I moved slowly back and forth through the suspended ships, slowly as the audience's eyes adjusted to the candlelight they could see more and more of the small ships which are hovering in front of them, above them, and on either side of them. Towards the end of each performance, I moved to the rear of the room, revealing the brick wall, the citadel wall. The candle was extinguished. The two tapes came to an end, and the audience was ushered out. Each, each session lasted ten minutes and was repeated continuously from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. during the day from August 8th to August 12th. From an interview with the Kipper Kids by Jim Moison in High Performance, September 1978. Harry Kipper won. As a part of the show, we used to drink a bottle of whiskey or some spirits, a whole quart. The show would start very precisely and would end up very violent, not towards the audience, but with that threat. The boxing would be very hard, and people used to walk out on that. Jim Moison. So you'd hit yourself very hard. Harry, one. Yeah, until we'd bleed. Definitely have black eyes, etc. Jim. You wouldn't hit each other? Harry, one. No. No, only one person, exactly as you, as you saw it. But for the climax, we'd be streaming with blood. And that looks very dramatic. Jim. It is. Harry, one. He used to do it really well because his nose bleeds. He just has to blow his nose and it bleeds. But I have to hit mine really hard. Jim. That's why he's the boxer. Harry, too. When we did it first, in fact, uh, I used to do it every single night. I did it for a month, and he refused to do it. I'd say, come on, do it just once more. One night we didn't do it and did another ceremony in its place, but it, it just didn't have the same power. I just flatly refused to do the boxing. So he started doing it and really liked it for a while. We don't like doing it now, but at one point we used to fight over who wanted to have the glory. Jim, what kind of places did you like to play? Harry, places that don't have any connotation at all of being an art gallery, a nightclub, a theater, or anything, an alternative space, more or less. What I'd like to find is, is a place where we can have a permanent stage set, like a big studio where we could do a couple of shows a month. That way the set could prog progressively change and build up. When we did the three-month run in Munich, the show started very simply, with a totally uncomplicated stage set, and after three months, it took a whole day to clear the set. It was like a foot-deep papier-mâché, because every night we'd put down fresh, unprinted newspaper that we made look like a lunar landscape. We'd piss on it and pour things on it, and it'd get really soggy. After three months, it was like a foot of solid wood, and we had all this rubbish that we'd collected from the rubbish dump and had it all wired with contact microphones uh, to an onlooker without being on stage. It just looked like a big pile of shit. But for us, every single thing had a function. So we brought it to life. We played the whole set. The whole thing was a huge piece of percussion attached to a, attached to a bundle of microphones taped to bottles, cans, to the backs of frying pans, everything. The stuff was hanging on the floor, on shelves. Uh, for example, we always, we used to always use pickles. So every time we'd get through a jar of pickles, we'd put the half-empty jars on the shelf. 
they had different amounts of pickle juice, and if you hit them with a stick, they'd make different types of sound. Jim, did you have a piece involving pickles? Harry won. We used to sing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. We'd have a pickle suspended from our necks on a piece of string and our cocks sticking out. We'd hold the pickle up and sing to Harry. Let's sing it. Chair chink chai chink chai chink chai chai chink chai chai diamonds are a girl's best friend. Oom bites off the end of pickle. And so we'd finish eating it. And that's what we did with diamonds. The Marilyn Monroe song. Very nice. From a 1978 high performance magazine interview with Paul McCarthy by Linda Burnham. The majority of performances by Paul McCarthy have been for videotape or for private audiences, but his few public works have met with interference. Political Disturbance, 1976. Linda. Why were you dressed as an Arab? Paul. It just sort of came together like that. I hadn't really contrived it. It's just that I had bought this Arab mask. Puts it on. Linda. Laughter. Paul, wearing the mask. I bought the mask, and I had this suit that I graduated from high school in, and I looked. Shows photo. The day of the performance, I bought these plastic crucifixes, and I had some Arab music, this chanting music. It all came together. Linda. What did you do when they approached you and asked you to stop? Paul. Well, it started off when the bellboy came up and said, You're going to have to stop this. I was on the stairway, and I was eating some raw hamburger, and I had already hung these things in the stairwell. I didn't say anything, but turned away so I couldn't face him. That meant he would have to come up the stairway. He just kept, tell he, he just kept telling me to stop from down in the doorway into the twelfth floor. By that time, there was a crowd of people, so we went to the hotel management. The manager came up and started screaming at me to stop, and I stayed there. I, ju I just kept facing the wall. I could hear them, and I was singing and dancing, humming, groaning. I had a ketchup-covered doll on my head. I'd been, been performing for about 30 minutes, so things had sort of started collecting on me on the floor and on the stairs. This went on for a while, but they wouldn't come up the stairs. They would just yell at me. Linda. What was the part they thought was obscene? Paul. I tried to put a ketchup bottle up my ass, but it wasn't overtly sexual as some of the other stuff has been. I believe when they were saying it was obscene, they were referring to the shape uh, to the tape it showed the night before. They, they thought that was live too, and that upset them. That I had pulled this over on them, done this live thing the first night. Also, during the, the performance, I had a doll hanging out of my pants. Class Fool, 1976. Paul. I got down on the ground and shoved my face into a bucket of ketchup. I was spreading the ketchup around on the floor. I found that by talking to myself, I could remove myself from them to where I could begin to get into the process. I started to crawl underneath them. I had a big doll between my legs. I had coated its head with blue eyeshadow with my hands. I started jumping up and down, and the floor was slippery, so I would fall. 
and because the chairs were there, I would bash into the chairs. I knew I was going to fall as long as I kept doing it, and they knew it. I'd fall real hard, a hard fall, as long as I kept jumping. I'd done these things like that before. One time I ran into a room blindfolded, and I put objects on the floor that would trip me, and I would run. I would slow down when I thought I was close to something on the floor or the wall. It produced an internal conflict. One part wanted me to complete it, the other part was protecting me. I would try to jump and fall, and I began to wonder if someone would try and catch me. Finally, two people did. They tried to catch me. Then I crawled underneath them some more. I'd put a Barbie doll up my ass. I'd eaten some hand cream or something. I drank some ketchup, and I began to throw up. From an essay by Linda Burnham called Performance Art in Southern California, an overview. McCarthy's work, the mildest of which has been called disgusting, is impossible for many performance audiences to watch. His artistic space is one in which he persuades himself to indulge in the most primitive and infantile fantasies of violence and monstrosity. Barbara Smith, in a seminal article in the Leica Journal, January 1979, described her friend's performances. Quote, Since 1972, all of his performances have involved the ingestion of either raw meat, mayonnaise, or cold cream, and the binding or adding to his penis of dolls and other material, and smearing his body, particularly his face, hair, and genital area, with ketchup, mayonnaise, and or actual makeup. It is not clear whether my descriptions adequately convey the repellent quality of the work, nor indeed the exact nature of these feelings. Perhaps it may seem that a certain objectivity could be maintained, but this never seems to be the case. End quote. In one representative piece, Sailor's Meat, 1974, McCarthy appeared on a sleazy bed wearing a woman's blonde wig and bikini underpants with his penis hanging out one side. The visual effect was masculine and feminine simultaneously. The bed was covered with chunks of ground meat. He slithered on the bed in ketchup and mayonnaise, at once lazily sexual and abusive, appearing to, pa appearing to pantomime rape and masturbation. Quote, with a sort of slow deliberateness, McCarthy is able to subordinate the details of his movements and manner in the piece into an astonishing and incredible display. It is as if he is set out to become all, and certainly the most deceptively reviled, aspects of our androgynous humanity. It is a display of inner power as well as a prayer coming from great need, by putting himself in such a position, he may affect the harmony and energy of wholeness. There is a sort of rapture to his display. End quote. In response to the charges of ambiguity and irresponsibility, McCarthy has said, quote, If you understood the work, then it would be okay? Intentions are only fantasies which prove not entirely true. End quote. Smith absolves him of guilt by referring to cultural sanctions. 
Quote, In some countries, persons, such as he who behaves rather than makes, are considered holy. Rather than say he is merely being self-expressive or throwing a tantrum, it would be better to honor the mutual journey that performer and audience take together, which can be realized in perhaps no other way so concretely. End quote. In defense of his motives, McCarthy states, quote, It is my belief that our culture has lost a true perception of existence. It is veiled. We are only fumbling in what we perceive to be reality. For the most part, we do not know we are alive. End quote. These are descriptions of performances from Linda Montano's book, Art and Everyday Life. The Chicken Show, University of Wisconsin-Madison, May 20th, 1969. Art. On May 20th, 1969, I had my MFA show on the roof of the art department and throughout the city of Madison. It consisted of 1. 3. Six foot by six foot by three foot chicken wire cages with three chickens in each cage. Each day I put the chickens in different cages. Two. Inside the building I hung nine hand tinted photographs of the chickens which were taken at the agricultural school. Three. A chicken video played for the duration of the show. Four. A month before the show, I installed an extra phone in my house, which had an answering service. It played chicken sounds whenever anyone called a number which I had posted in the city. 5. During the show, I rented a car loudspeaker and drove in the city playing chicken sounds. 6. I distributed silkscreen posters of chickens and vacuum-formed chicken parts. 7. The nine chickens were given to the art department janitor at the end of the show, and he began a chicken farm. Life All of the other graduate students in Madison were constructing, uh, were constructing gigantic minimal objects, and I couldn't keep up with them. I was scared and felt out of place in sculpture and graduate school. I often visited the agricultural school and saw chickens there, they became, my, they became my totem. Once I decided that I could show chickens in the gallery, all kinds of creative ideas began to flow. The chicken show taught me how to laugh. Plus, I became the chicken woman. Chicken Dance. The Streets of San Francisco. San Francisco, California, 1972. Art. I performed a chicken dance in nine different outdoor spaces in San Francisco. The sites were museums, galleries, and the Golden Gate Bridge. The dances were on the third month at noon, three and six o'clock. I wore a blue prom dress, tap shoes, chicken hat, and white face. I pulled a chicken cart, which played Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Life a few months after the lying down piece, I did this dancing event which seemed to actually balance the active and passive images that interested me. Actually, I feel that I needed the balance and the events grew out of the unconscious need. 
it was also a protest. I knew that the museums and galleries would not show my work, so I presented it in I presented it there despite the rejections. A personal salon de refuse. The suicide prevention squad picked me up for dancing on the Golden Gate Bridge and said that I was holding up traffic for five miles on each side and that if any accidents occurred while I had been dancing, that I would have been liable. I quickly realized that art had a public ethic. Home Endurance, March 26, 1973 to April 2, 1973 art. For a week, I stayed at home and sent invitations to friends to visit me. I announced my availability. While at home, I documented all thoughts, activities, foods eaten, phone calls. I photographed all visitors. Life. I was scattered, nervous, running, and the only way to counteract the tendency was to stay in one place and call it art. That, that way, I felt as if I were really doing something in this case, being peaceful and making art. Maybe I could learn to be harmonious by practicing stillness in my work. That was the reasoning. Also, it was a way of being home on my own terms. I didn't want to be a housewife. Garage Talk, 1974 Art for three days, I talked to everyone who went by my garage. I was there from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Life. Art has often felt like a luxury to me. It seemed as if I could do whatever I wanted, but always in my own time. But I often questioned the politics. Was I really working like everyone else, earning my keep in the world? Was I a valuable person, uh, a valuable professional person? I constructed this event which somewhat silenced the questions. Keeping nine to five hours as an artist for just three days transformed me into a worker. People responded to my presence. Neighbors told me problems. A birthday was celebrated. I was available, like my grandmother. Three-Day Blindfold. How to Become a Guru. Woman's Building, Los Angeles, 1975. Art. For three days, I lived blindfolded in a gallery at the Woman's Building. Paulina Oliveros became my guide and didn't speak during the event. Life. I loved camping out, probably because I always wanted to go to summer camp as a child and couldn't, so I often camped in galleries, sometimes living there for some time. In this event, I blindfolded myself because I didn't want to react visually or socially and thought that I could alter my perceptions and therefore drop habituation and judgment. It was exhilarating and I was fearless, beyond society, acting intuitively. Pauline Oliveros became my guide for that time and we moved without guilt for those three days. I kept repeating similar experiments in other ways in order to become familiar with expanded body feelings. This piece was a vacation. It changed my life. Astral Travel While Staying Physically 
in Lucada, I will travel astrally to Bud's Ice Cream in San Francisco, Lucada, Lucadia, California, 1976. The date of this appearance was All Saints Day, November 1st. When I moved to San Diego, I missed my friends in San Francisco, so I symbolically visited them. During the event, I visualized myself there and retained the image for three hours. Two friends went to Bud's, and no one saw me. That concludes the readings of descriptions of performance artworks. Now I'm going to read from the book of Ezekiel. As I was among the captives by the river of Chabar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. In the fifth day of the month, which is the fifth which was the fifth year of King Jehoachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Chabar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire, also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass, and they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined to one another, they turned not when they went, they went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, they four also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies, and they went every one straight forward. Whither the spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance 
their appearance was like burning coals of fire, and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with his four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of a barrel, and they four had one likeness, and their appearance and their work was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went up on their four sides, and they turned not when they went. As for their wings, as for their rings, rather, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their rings were full of eyes round about them four. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go. And the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the, li of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up, when those were lifted up from the earth, the, the wheels were lifted up over against them. For the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels, and the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creature was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above, and under the firmament were their wings straight, the one toward the other. Every one had two, which covered on this side, and every one had two, which covered on that side, their bodies. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of an host. And when they stood, they let down their wings. And there was a voice from the firmament that was over their heads when they stood and had let them and had let down their wings. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the as the appearance of a man above it, and I saw as the color of amber as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the, appear from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and it had the brightness round about. And the appearance of the bow, that is the cloud, in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness around about it. This was the appearance and the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. And it said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me, 
and set me upon my feet, that I heard him that spake unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear, or whether, whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, there their briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear, or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee, be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth, and eat what I give thee. And when I looked, behold, an hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, and there was written within lamentations, and mourning, and woe. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest, eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. And he said unto me, Son of man, go, and get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech, and in hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech, and of a hard language, whose words thou canst not understand. Surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy foreheads, thy foreheads strong against their foreheads. As an adamant harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, for though they be a rebellious house, moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak unto thee receive in thine heart, and hear with thine ears. And go, get thee to them of the captivity, unto the children of thy people, and speak unto them, and tell them, Thus saith the Lord God, whether they will hear, or whether they will forbear. Then the Spirit took me up, and I heard behind me a voice of a great rushing, saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. 
I heard also the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another, and the noise of the wheels over against them, and a noise of a great rushing. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strung upon me. Then I came to the captivity at Tel Abib, that dwelt by the river of Chabar, and I sat where they sat, and remained there, astonished, among them seven days. And it came to pass at the end of seven days, that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth, and give them a warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned. Also, thou hast delivered thy soul. And the hand of the Lord was there upon me, and he said unto me, Arise, go forth into the plain, and I will there talk to thee. Then I arose and went forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, as the glory which I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. Then the Spirit entered into me, and it set me upon my feet, and spake with me, and said unto me, Go, shut thyself within thine house. But thou, O son of man, behold, they shall put bands upon thee, and shall bind thee with them, and thou shalt not go among them. And I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth, that thou shalt be dumb, and shalt not be to them a reprover, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with thee, I will open thy mouth, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, He that heareth, let him hear, and he that forbeareth, let him forbear. For they are a rebellious house. Chapter 4 Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile, and lay it before thee, and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem, and lay siege against it, and build a fort against it, and cast, and cast a mount against it, set the camp also against it, and set battering rams against it round about. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan, 
and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city, and set thy face against it. And it shall be besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon it. Thou shalt bear their iniquity, for I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, three hundred and ninety days. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Therefore thou shalt set thy face towards the siege of Jerusalem, and thine arm shall be uncovered, and thou shalt prophesy against it. And behold, I will lay bands upon thee, and thou shalt not turn thee from one side to another, till thou hast ended the days of thy siege. Take also unto thee wheat, and barley, and beans, and lentils, and millet, and fitches, and put them into one vessel, and make thee bread thereof, according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon thy side. Three hundred and ninety days thou, thou shalt eat thereof. And thy meat, which thou shalt eat, shall be by weight twenty shekels a day. From time to time thou shalt eat it. Then shalt thou drink also water by measure, the sixth part of an hen. From time to time thou shalt drink. And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes. And thou shalt bake it with dung that cometh out of man in their sight. And the Lord said, Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, whither I will drive them. Then said I, uh, Lord God, uh, behold, for my soul hath not been polluted, for from my youth up even till now have I not eaten of that which dieth of itself, or is torn in pieces, neither came there abominable flesh into my mouth. Then he said unto me, Lo, I have given thee cow's dung for man's dung, and thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. Moreover he said unto me, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment that they may want bread and water, and be astonished one with another, and consume away for their iniquity. And thou, son of man, take thee a sharp knife, take thee a barber's razor, and cause it to pass upon thine head and upon thy beard. Then take three balances to weigh and divide the hair." Thou shalt burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are fulfilled. And thou shalt take a third part and smite about it with a knife. And a third part thou shalt scatter with the wind, and I will draw out a sword after them. Thou shalt also take thereof a few in number and bind them in thy skirts. Then 
take of them again, and cast them into the midst of the fire, and burn them in the fire, for thereof shall a fire come forth unto all the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are around her, and she hath changed my judgments into wickedness more than the nations, and my statutes more than the countries that are around her. For they have refused my judgments and my statutes, they have not walked in them. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Because ye multiplied more than the nations that are around about you, and have not walked in my statutes, neither have you kept my judgments, neither have you done according to the judgments of the nations that are around you. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against thee, and will execute judgments in the midst of thee in the sight of nations. And I will do in thee that which I have not done, whereunto I will not do any more the like, because of thine abominations. Therefore the fathers shall eat the sons in the midst of thee, and the sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments in thee, and the whole remnant of thee will I scatter into all the winds. Wherefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, Surely, because thou hast defiled my sanctuary with all thy detestable things, and with all thine abominations, therefore will I also diminish thee. Neither shall mine eyes spare, neither will I have any pity. A third part of thee shall die with the pestilence, and with famine shall they be consumed in the midst of thee, and a third part a third part shall fall by the sword round about thee, and I will scatter a third part into all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus shall mine anger be accomplished, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be comforted, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have accomplished my fury in them. Moreover, I will make thee waste and a reproach among the nations that are around about thee in the sight of all that pass by. So it shall be a reproach and a taunt, an instruction and an astonishment unto the nations that are around thee when I shall execute judgments in thee in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken it. When I shall send upon them the evil arrows of famine, which shall be for their destruction, and which I will send to destroy you, and I will increase the famine upon you, and will break your staff of bread. So will I send upon you famine and evil beasts, and they shall bereave thee, and pestilence and blood shall pass through thee, and I will bring the sword upon thee. I, the Lord, have spoken it.
Thanks for listening to this recording. I hope it was rewarding for you. Until the next episode, this is Frauder H saying, hey.